0: Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. There are three different types of radiation, alpha, beta, and gamma. What does this technology do? It's like, well, what can you do with electricity? I just survived 30 years HIV positive. I'm certainly not going to let a, a little thing like a brain tumor derail me. When I got to 29 pounds, I was so tired, I just collapsed. Everything always goes back to being... And in center. It's a Mecca for cycling, for sure. Struggle is the neutralizing force. And I said, there it is. This is the right family. I'm, I got like cold and. It's one lone oak tree right in the middle of the trail. It's beautiful. Hey, everyone, I hope you've had a great week since the last time that we got together. My week has been so busy. I thought I would answer some questions from listeners that I've received and also just give you some updates of what's been going on in my life. One of the most exciting things to happen is that the film that I had been working on won Best Feature film at the National Black Film Festival in Houston, Texas on Friday, June 10th. And it's really exciting. This is such a great film. It's basically about a parallel universe in which there are not just Greek or Roman mythology gods, there's gods like Apollo, Athena, Medusa. Um, A lot of really fun gods. Persephone is there. Hades is there. But in addition to that, it is also a world of caste systems. So we explore a lot of current topics, including racism in this film and bigotry. And basically what happened is the name of this parallel universe is Hades. And so in This parallel universe, they are, of course, trying to increase their population. So they tend to come over to this side of the world and kidnap people. And they kind of drug them. And then the sirens, if you've ever read The Odyssey, the sirens were these beautiful bird-like women. You know, it just depends on what story you're reading. Some of them, they were beautiful and they had these bird legs And in other ones, they were just these gorgeous kind of mermaid like women and with such beautiful voices that they would lure men to drive their ships into the rocks and they would kill them. And I guess there's a little bit of similarity with mermaids, because if you read enough mermaid stories, mermaids are really not nice they're not all aerials. I'm sure that there are some, but they are such jealous kind of heartless creatures of the sea that they want. And of course, this is all fictional, but they want to become human. And in order to become human, they tend to lure men into the depths of... And then they take them down to the bottom of the ocean where, of course, these mortal humans die on their way down. And um, sometimes, you know, they kind of know what they're doing. It's kind of one of those things where they keep repeating the process, killing one guy after the next hoping that they will eventually break this pattern and actually have a living husband under the sea and somehow by osmosis, I guess, become human themselves, but it never happens. I think that's kind of the formula of insanity, right? They say that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So I'm sorry, mermaids. I'm sorry, but let's figure it out. Of course, The Little Mermaid, the Hans Christian Andersen one, and I believe it's the same one that Disney has adapted, is um, The Little Mermaid giving up a lot to get legs and be able to walk on land and marry this prince who is, I think, in the Hans Christian Andersen story, not in love with her. Huh. It's such a bummer and it deviates so much from the happily ever after that I can see why Disney changed so much of it and really if you go and read any of those old fairy tales like the original Hans Christian Andersen ones, the original Brothers Grimm, they're really quite terrible and depressing. (laughs) There's not a lot of happily ever after but There's a lot of realism in that, you know, and they're educational in terms of expectations, tempering your expectations. So um, yeah, kind of a bummer story, just like these Greek mythology stories are. But uh, there are sirens in Fighting Olympus after the um, folks get drugged into submission and exposed to these sirens they end up staying in this parallel universe called Hades forever and so there is an attempt to take somebody into Hades and that is this officer named Biddle whose brother is also an officer Rucker and Rucker figures this out goes after him, ends up meeting all of these gods and goddesses over on the other side, has to fight battles to find his brother and try to get him out of there alive. Of course, they have to go up against Hades, who has taken Persephone. And if you are as big of a mythology nerd as I was. When I was a kid, I just couldn't get enough. I read Homer's Odyssey, I read the Iliad, I read just everything I could get my hands on. Persephone was actually One of my favorite stories. For some reason, that one just stuck with me forever. And it's been a while, so I'm kind of going off of memory here. If you heard my last episode, number 29, with Melanie Morose Edelstein, who is a librarian, we were talking about the love of reading. And I mentioned that I was just the biggest bookworm and I was never without a book. I also mentioned that I probably read the majority of my books during my teenage years, my early 20s as well. Greek mythology was definitely up there on that list. So going off of memory, Demeter was one of the gods that was Cronus's daughter. So Cronus is one of the Titans, and the Titans are pre-Olympus. They are the ones whose children are the gods that we're used to reading about. And Cronus's father was Uranus. I know it doesn't matter how you pronounce it. Actually, Sophia tried to correct me and she said it's Uranus. And I said, that sounds just as bad because people make fun of your AMS part or you're talking about urine. Um, the truth is that this is a Greek word and we're applying our dumbed down beavis and butthead thinking when we hear this word but in Greek mythology Uranus was the personification of heaven he is father sky so he was a big deal and you can see why the planet that we now refer to as Uranus got its name it is a big name and really most of those planets i'm sure you all know this but mars was the god of war mercury was the fleet god i believe the fast one pluto is god of the underworld jupiter is another name for zeus so roman and greek mythology had the same gods with different names like poseidon and neptune are the same god um just a little background on that So Kronos ended up fighting Uranus. His mother was Gaia, who is Mother Earth. Kronos is actually Father Time. So you hear his name Kronos. That's the basis or the etiology for the word chronology, which means time. So Mother Earth and Uranus were the parents of Kronos. And Kronos ends up fighting his own father, to get the throne. And he ends up getting word. There's a prophecy. There's always a prophecy in Greek and Roman mythology, right? There were big deals with these oracles. If you've watched the the film 300, there's an oracle in there and she belongs in the temple and they have her opiated up And while she's in this drug-induced state, she starts to prophesize. So there was a lot of superstition back then. And I don't know how much of that is real and how much is not. I'm kind of assuming that, you know, there was a lot of superstition and a lot of really um, things that just wouldn't fly these days that was going on back then, Um, as you will hear in this particular story I'm about to tell. So Cronus ends up fighting his father gets the throne. And there is a prophecy that Cronus's children will dethrone him and become rulers. And so he ends up having seven children. And he eats every single one of them except for his last born child swallows them up just after they're born. And they end up being imprisoned in his stomach and again because this is mythology anything goes in mythology right this is totally possible so i believe the first child was hestia and he's he just ate her up because i mean he doesn't know which one of these babies is going to grow up and dethrone him right so he eats hestia she hangs out in his belly for a while and along comes Demeter who is Persephone's mom she gets eaten up as a baby and then there's Hera and Hades okay so it's starting to get a little bit interesting here right like Demeter is Persephone's mom and Hades is Demeter's brother and then Poseidon gets eaten up and then Zeus is born well by this time Rhea, who is Cronus's wife and is also known as the mother of the gods, the goddess of female fertility, motherhood, and generation. Her name actually means flow and ease. She represents the eternal flow of time and generations. She was associated with the flow of menstruation, of birth waters, of milk that's produced for the babies, So she is really like the representation of life and sustenance for that life. So at this point, Rhea finally gets with the program and she's like, you're not eating another baby. Like you ate the last six. I don't know why it took her so long, but it did. So she secretly gives Zeus to Gaia to raise and to Kronos she presents a stone. And that stone is the same size, shape, weight as a newborn baby. And Kronos is probably drunk on wine, didn't realize that this was a stone. He eats it. He thinks that it is in his belly. Zeus, of course, is the ruler of Mount Olympus. He's kind of seen as the god of the gods. Um, He's the big honcho. He comes back as a grown up, he beats him up. I mean, like he goes to battle with his dad. And during this battle, he forces Kronos to regurgitate his brothers and sisters. And they are all grown up now. Again, it is Greek mythology. This works. They are full on adults and he barfs up one adult after the next. And once they're out, there are some stories that say that the siblings got together and it was finally their time to get their vengeance on their dad. So they backed Zeus up and battled Kronos to the end until he died. And then there's other stories that say that Kronos was imprisoned or that just Zeus single-handedly killed him. Um, I kind of like the one with siblings getting vengeance on their father because I would be pretty pissed off if I spent 20 something years in somebody's stomach imprisoned and you know in Greek mythology like they literally were just living in there like you know having normal lives inside of this titan's stomach <laughs> so um Zeus appoints himself ruler of them all and of course he should he just fought the battle of his life and and freed them all. And then everybody else gets to draw straws. So Poseidon, of course, becomes the god of the oceans, god of the sea. Hestia is the virgin goddess of the hearth and the right ordering of domesticity and family and the home and the state. Demeter is the goddess of harvest and agriculture. Hera is the goddess of women, marriage, family, and childbirth. And Hades drew the short straw because nobody wanted to be the god of the dead and the king of the underworld, but that's who he became. So like a lot of these old stories, like relationships, Are not what they are today. And, and I guess that today we say you should not have children with very close relatives because there are birth defects that occur and just all kinds of not good things that happen with the progeny. Well, I guess... It's because in olden times, they didn't know this. And later on, people figured it out. So these gods had no idea that this was a problem. And Zeus and his sister Demeter end up getting it on and they produce Persephone. And Persephone is just this gorgeous, beautiful goddess, right? She is born of two gods. Therefore, she is a goddess as well and she just she just loves life and she sings and one day she goes out to a field to pick flowers and fruit or something like that and there's butterflies flying around and the birds are singing in the trees and sunlight is shining and there's rainbows in the sky and you know the world is just as perfect as it can be and Hades who is the brother of Persephone's parents and therefore her uncle rises up out of a hole in the ground and kidnaps Persephone. And she goes screaming and clawing and she does not want to go into this dark, dank place of death. She loves life. She just loves it so much. And Hades is just enamored By his niece. I don't even know, you know, when I start thinking about some of the stuff, because you read about it in all of these ancient books and including the Old Testament, there is stuff like this. So I don't know if there was a connection to relationships in the same way that relationships are seen today, which is, you know, kind of an interesting way to look at this and of course i am talking about mythology i don't you know these gods as far as i know they weren't based on real people this is how the people of the time explained natural phenomenon anyway he was enamored by persephone brings her down into the underworld and tells her that he wants to make her his queen and persephone is just horrified. And she is like, she becomes terribly, terribly ill. I mean, she literally starts to wilt like a flower that's been plucked from the ground and not placed in water. There's dead people all around dead spirits. So it's not disgusting, right? But it's the dead spirits. And what's really interesting is that although Hades would have totally preferred to be above ground like the rest of his siblings and everybody else he really has a special place for these spirits that come to him for eternity to live the rest of their lives in this this supposed Paradise, right? This afterlife that they're going to. Because in Greek mythology, there is Mount Olympus, which is up in the clouds. And so that's kind of like heaven, but there wasn't heaven for mortal souls, for those spirits that went on. There was just this one place that was called Hades. And he goes to a lot of lengths to create a nice kingdom for these spirits that have moved on. There's, you know, there's of course, Charon, the fairy man, who is kind of scary because of what he does. So, you know, when somebody dies, people back then would put coins on the eyes. That's where that tradition came from or the pockets so that when that spirit left, they could take those coins with them to pay Charon to get them to the other side. And Charon A little spoiler alert here is actually one of the characters in fighting Olympus. And he is such a badass. He's just like so amazing. He, you know, he carries these people across the river Styx. And then there's guides. So sometimes they give uh, their departed extra coins so that they can pay for the best guide to get them over to the best part of Hades and, you know, to meet Hades the god so it's really not the horrible place that we would imagine it to be because i believe that what ended up happening is this is all pre-christianity a lot of these myths are and when christian history began to be written there was some reinterpretation of these locales that the people of the time understood as doctrine And so there was some reinterpretation. Hades became hell and Mount Olympus became heaven. And then there was additional writings that completely changed the aspect of those different places so that they are what we know them to be today. But that is an extensive subject. And today I want to focus just on fighting Olympus, um, I think at some point I would love to get a religious scholar and one who is also familiar with mythology and um, Christian history of that time period as the world moved from its earlier, what, you know, we would consider today more of a pagan norm into this Christian norm. So there's this transitional period and So while Hades has Persephone down there, he's trying to get her to eat something because she is so sick and she is, he's like, she's going to die. She's just going to become another spirit that I've got down here. So he's trying to get her to eat. And in the meantime, Demeter is having these negotiations with her brother to get her daughter released. And while all that happens, eventually Persephone is so so malnourished her mind's not working well and she eats two pomegranate seeds just because she just gives up and she eats them and the thing with those two pomegranate seeds is that they're not enough to keep her down there because if you eat something while you're in Hades that's it you're stuck down there like you don't actually die you don't become a spirit but you don't get to leave But she only ate two pomegranate seeds and there wasn't enough nutrient and enough substance, enough magical, whatever. If she would have eaten a hamburger, right, a good old cheeseburger or something like that, she would have been stuck down there. You know, I mean, you eat one here on Earth and sometimes you're stuck to your seat. You got to undo that top button. You can't move around for about an hour afterwards. (laughs) That would have guaranteed her residing in Hades forever but she had two pomegranate seeds and it wasn't enough to keep her down there but it wasn't enough for her to really be released so what ended up happening is that during these negotiations Hades said look you can have her back for six months out of the year and she'll be my wife for six months out of the year well you know best of both worlds win-win womp 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 so Demeter being the goddess of harvest and agriculture when she's getting the world ready for Persephone to come back she makes things grow flora and fauna there's you know baby deer baby bunnies baby birds, baby everything, just, you know, all over the place in the springtime. There's beautiful flowers, buds are blooming. And when she's here on Earth, it's just full on summer, just beautiful. And then when she has to go back, Demeter gets sad. Leaves start to fall off trees, the wind blows, it's not as comfortable to be outside anymore. And when she's gone, Demeter is at her saddest. And that's when it starts to snow and get cold and it's the darkest days of winter, frigid. And then it happens all over again the next six months. And that's how the Greeks and the Romans explained their seasons was that Hades had a hold of Persephone during fall and winter and Demeter got her back during spring and summer. So, I mean, I don't know. Hades is kind of horrible. Um, But we do have both Hades and Persephone in this story. And I mean, I'm telling you, with all of this Greek mythology background, knowing what Poseidon did, knowing about Apollo, um, just having like Medusa, her whole history. So she's got such a crazy history. She is the daughter of Forces and Seto, who were primordial sea gods. And they also happened to be related to one another. They were brothers and sisters. And they had just a lot of terrible, as in terror, (laughs) children. Um, Sea serpents, things like that. In fact, Cedo became known as the mother of sea monsters. And she had some daughters who were called the Gorgons. And Medusa happened to be one of the Gorgons and they were just really horrifying creatures who looked like Medusa did at the end, kind of like a boar snout, snake hair, that sort of thing, just very scary. You looked at them, they were so horrifying and their gaze so piercing. That you would turn into stone if you looked at her, even for a nanosecond. And the thing is that Medusa was not born looking like that. She was actually born immortal. So these two gods ended up having a mortal child who was incredibly gorgeous. And of course, her parents being sea gods, she garnered the attention of the greatest god of the sea, Poseidon. And that turned out to be a terrible thing for the beautiful Medusa because Poseidon raped her, but he didn't just rape her anywhere, which is terrible on its own. He raped her inside of the temple of Athena and Athena found out and blew a gasket. She blamed Medusa for the rape. Talk about blaming the victim. One of the things that I noticed regularly with Greek mythology is that the gods were incredibly fallible. They were some of the worst deities that have existed. They were whimful, arrogant, quick to anger, retributionary. I mean, they were really awful. And incredibly jealous. And that was one of the things that Athena was, if anything, she wanted to be the most beautiful, mortal, immortal, whatever, she just needed to be the most beautiful goddess mirror mirror on the wall, right? And it angered her that Athena was so beautiful that Poseidon had the urge to rape her. And then again, this goes into like way too much psychology, but rape is an action of violence, not of love. And it took many, many years for people to figure this out. So in this story, the rape occurred because Poseidon couldn't help himself. But also, you know, Poseidon kept Homer from going back home because he was super pissed off at him, created the storm that lasted 10 years. So, I mean, they had tantrum fits. The gods were not the best role models. So Athena turned Medusa back into one of those really hideous Gorgons and just, you know, basically ruined her life. And eventually she pretty much asked for Medusa's head um, Perseus found her and beheaded her. So Perseus chased after her, which is where you get the base or the etiology of the word pursue. Perseus was not a god. He was a mortal, but he was a, a hero and a slayer of monsters. He beheaded Medusa and deflected her gaze with his shield. And when he beheaded her, she was pregnant with Poseidon's children. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. She had some really strange children, and they were Chrysar, who was a golden giant that was already, already had a sword on him. And the other one was Pegasus, and Pegasus flew off and. Perseus returned to Athena after, after using Medusa's head in various battles and turning people to stone because her head was still active with this terrible ability. Um, He finally handed the head over to Athena. And that was um, not necessarily the end of her story because her progeny continued. And just to continue that crazy legacy and the ocean theme Chrysar married Calero, and eventually they had a child who was triple-headed. His name was Garion, and Garion was killed by Hercules. So there's so many connections with this mythological um, story that it really feels in some ways real. Of course, it is all myth, as the title indicates, but it's just, you know, it's a lot of fun. It was it was a lot of fun for me to read these stories. And just having that interconnectivity um, created just such a rich world to kind of just get lost in. Um, So we bring up some of those issues connected with Medusa in this film. And so I am super thrilled that I got to get back in touch with that love for Greek and Roman mythology that I had growing up and work directly with the story and these amazing actors who brought those characters to life. And of course, just the very talented creator of this film, Julian V. Hampton, as well as the equally talented crew and you know everybody that was part of this. and And just for us to get a win our characters were really diverse. There was just a wonderful mix of diverse backgrounds and exceptional talent. So um, it just really is is just kind of like the cherry on top. I will not spoil the ending or any other part of this film other than to say that It's a little bit of fantasy, a little bit of drama, a lot of action and a lot, a lot of fun. It was also a lot of work. It was about two and a half years in the making, which sounds completely insane. But we started shooting just prior to the pandemic, just prior to COVID shutting everything down. And one of the things, as you might remember, that were just indefinitely shut down were filming studios, filming whatsoever. And, of course, with social distancing, um, there are some scenes like anything that required a kiss that was just completely out of the question. Anything that required proximity closer than six feet was out of the question. And so, you know, in the interest of safety for everybody we did shut down and it was you know it was the law we had to shut down so we had a lot of this film already shot there were some really great scenes and we just kind of had to put the brakes on everything which was a total bummer everybody went and did their own thing so it was a pretty interesting period we ended up the producers i i was an associate producer On this project, in addition to being the script supervisor, I had a small acting part in it. And on certain days when there was a lot that still needed to be done, I, you know, ended up working in a variety of capacities, which is one of the things with independent film that's really exciting is that you really earn your chops working on independent films because there's just times where you have to be the sound person or you have to be the lighting person or you have to do whatever it is that that particular scene calls on to get it done and so there ends up being this very tight-knit camaraderie that occurs as well because you're all depending on each other and you're all bouncing ideas off of each other and so you become very close in order to be able to get the project done. So that was, you know, that was part of what was so much fun as well. And of course, you're meeting a lot of really fun, talented, super smart people. So it's just a wonderful project to work on. But the things that are a little bit concerning is that things change. Things change during that whole period. We were shut down for about a year, at least maybe a little bit more And so people come back on the sets and they have different hairstyles that we have to compensate for. Uh, You want to reshoot something somewhere and the tree is no longer there. That happened with another project that I had been working on where we got back together and wanted to um, extend a scene. And the tree was gone. I guess it got hit by lightning or something and they cut it down. It was this enormous, just ancient tree and it was gone. So things like that happen on fighting Olympus specifically, there was this old dilapidated, just, you know, barely hanging on by, I don't know what, (laughs) by the fibers in the wood fence. And we went to, start up the shoot again and we needed to continue from this particular location and that fence was gone it had been replaced by a brand new fence and you just can't get ancient old fences like that you can't just find them anywhere and there's a lot of things that you can do to kind of cheat some of those elements of the film um cheat you know distances make the background a little bit blurry that sort of thing um, add a couple of things into the background to just give it a little bit of familiarity even if it doesn't match exactly 100 percent. and then you can fix stuff and edit as well but it's so easy for people to say oh that can be fixed and edit it becomes really expensive to do that and it's not super, super easy. I know that a lot of things are CGI would and this has become a norm. But there is a lot of talent and experience that goes behind that. So whenever anything looks easy, it's usually you're looking at an expert that's working on that. So um, but and then there's the expense of that as well. So You know, you want to try to get it right the first time. And with so many interruptions in film during COVID, it's just really awesome to see these shows coming back, to see the films coming out, and and just how well put together they are, the continuity that is seamless in them, because there was a long break during COVID. So speaking of wins... I doubled my money this week. It was pretty awesome. So I literally cannot remember the last time that I played the lotto. I just feel like it's throwing your money away. It's not the best strategy for improving your assets. So if you listen to episode 27, when I was talking with Anna Marin of Saints and Sinners Horses, we talked about how neither one of us gamble. If I ever go anywhere with Anna where you can gamble, like Vegas or something like that, you're going to find us shopping or watching the shows or sitting by the pool because gambling's just not our thing. Definitely not my thing. Oh my God. I have this story. I went to Vegas. I was probably like, 22 years old walking around having a great time I'm feeling really good enjoying myself and I thought you know what I need I need to just slap some money down on a table like they do in the movies let them spin the roulette wheel and rake in like a million dollars that would just make my night I would just top everything off so I pulled a 20 out of my purse, set it on the table and the dealer, like a magician with a sleight of hand, because, you know, there is an art to dealing and he was very elegant about it, takes my money, pushes it inside of a clear cylinder and tamps it down. And I just watch it go. It gets sucked in there and it's and my money's floating away from me, probably directly into their coffers. And in the meantime, he pushed a a chip over to me. And I was so distracted by everything, by the chandeliers, the lights, the sounds of a casino, the money clanging, the bells and whistles going, the people moving about, just the music. There, There was, you know, there's always so much going on in the casino. And I'm at a table doing something that I know absolutely nothing about. And that wasn't, you know, honestly, that was not my first time there. I had gone twice before. It's not really a destination place for me because I would rather be hiking and doing things outdoors. But I'd been there twice before, once as a kid with my uncle and my aunt, and we just spent the entire time, their kids and and me in the pool and having a blast going to Circus Circus, watching the Trapeze artists. And then the next time we were headed to Lake Mead, a bunch of friends and I, and we left about five o'clock. They were doing all of this construction on the route that we were taking, and it was just horrendous traffic. We got into Vegas around midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Normally, I think it's like a five hour drive. It shouldn't, shouldn't have taken anywhere near that long. So I'm stumbling out of the car trying to get into... This casino to get some coffee in me or something. You know, I was in a car in a state of complete exhaustion and it was dark outside. I walk in, I'm assaulted by lights, I'm assaulted by the machine sounds, people sitting in front of machines with big cups of coins in front of them, looking like something out of an Edgar Degas painting, like the absinthe drinker, which is a couple looking very drunk. Dreary, tired, just kind of staring into this void of a future. And they were actually friends of Degas. One of them was Marceline Deboutin, and the other one was Ellen Andre, and she was a well known actress in her day. And there was actually like a big deal with that particular painting because Degas had to go out and let everybody know that they were not alcoholics. I mean, they pulled the role off so well um absinthe had the reputation for a really long time in fact it was banned here in the united states for a while as being so damaging especially to the brain they blamed it on the wormwood that is fermented and used in this particular spirit uh, that it would make you more likely to commit violent crimes so it was banned it has made a comeback Yeah. So I felt like when I walked into that casino, there's all of these people there at one o'clock in the morning with these coins and this expression on their face that was very much like the expression on the woman from the absinthe drinker, you know, smoking cigarettes, throwing alcohol down their throats. And I was in shock. (laughs) And it was probably just, you know, this huge contrast from the way that I was feeling and where I had been and walking in and not expecting this level of stimulation. And so here I am back in that really crazy, kind of organized, chaotic atmosphere, completely distracted. And I don't have a clue how gambling works. So so the person I was with leans over and says, are you going to gamble a whole $20? And I'm like, oh, What? No, I'll do like two $10 chips. Picked up that chip. Well, that started a slightly terrifying series of events. The dealer looks at me, immediately looks over at the security guard. The security guard starts walking over towards me. And I'm like, what the heck just happened? There's no pause in between you getting your coin and the game being started. And I go, I, I can't do this. And the dealer looks at me and I think he shook his eyes. I don't even think he shook his head. There was just kind of like this aggressive, no tolerance rule. So I put my chip back down and the game continued. And 10 seconds later, I was a loser. I was a stressed out loser, <laughs> which is even worse. That was a big bummer. I don't, I might not be over it yet. <laughs> Yeah, that um, that kind of cured me from gambling. So when I say it's probably been anywhere from six to 10 years that I've gambled or even bought a lotto ticket, it's true. So it's kind of funny because earlier this week, I was scrolling through the news and I came ap- across this article about people who had ruined their lives by winning the lotto there was a couple that got divorced another one that that bought a bunch of new cars a new house all these extravagances and they ended up losing all of their money and now they're in debt other people whose families and friendships got torn apart because they weren't lending money or they were lending too much and you know now they're broke I didn't read them all very carefully because they're stories that you hear all the time, right? People come into money and they don't know how to handle it. And it just creates all kinds of havoc. Well, I ended up having to go to the store to get more lettuce and dandelion leaves for Vladimir, my tortoise. And when I paid for it in my change, I got two ones and a few coins and the lotto, Automatic Lotto machine is on the other side of the checkout counters. And I thought, let me invite some misery into my life. And I put $2 in. And I think that there was an amount, uh, you know, one of the the big Lotto prizes was at $296 million or maybe $29.6 million. I don't know. It was a lot of millions. And so I decided to choose that So the next day, Sophie and I were running some errands and we ended up in a store where they had one of the same type of vending machines. So I scanned my ticket and I won $4. Sophie and I went up to the register, made our purchases and got the $4. And on the way out, we thought, let's take the earnings. So we took $2 and put it back in the machine. Well, we ended up winning $8 back. So now I have $6 that I think I'm going to put back into the machine. I still have my my original $2. And I started thinking, wouldn't it be funny if every time that I went in to purchase a lotto ticket, I mean, it would be kind of cool, actually. It just increased like a Fibonacci sequence. So I thought I'd sit down and write out the first part And I had to do a little bit of cheating here. And maybe there's some really, really smart mathematician out there who can send me what it would really look like at some point. But I sequenced it out like, even though it's not exact, what am I going to win next? What would that pattern be? I figured it out this way, which is two plus two is four. You put two more in, you get six. 6 plus 4 is 10. 10 plus 6 is 16. 16 plus 10 is 26. 26 plus 16 is 42. 42 plus 26 is 68. 68 plus 42 comes out to 110. 110 plus 68 is 178. 178 plus 110 is 288. I got about that far. And I started thinking, well, would I actually take those earnings and put that back in? I couldn't imagine spending that much on a lotto ticket. So, rather than thinking about these big gains, I started thinking about what this Fibonacci sequence like formula would look like that I was creating with even numbers instead of starting with one. And although it seems very minor, it just seems like, well, it's just one whole number. I'm sure that spiral will look very, very different and perhaps not even as symmetrical as the original Fibonacci sequence. So that would be really something interesting to look at because I'm such a gigantic nerd. And if somebody doesn't know what the Fibonacci sequence is, it explains spiral patterns, mostly in nature, but they're also used for architectural details. So like a fiddlehead that beautiful curl that you see at the top of a fiddlehead, a nautilus shell, any of those flowers that have like a pincushion or a sunflower or a zinnia where they have the little teeny tiny petals or seeds in the center and they continue to spiral out in larger and larger and larger pattern until they form this entire floral center. And many flowers continue on to their outer petals. And that formula to make that perfect spiral begins with 0 plus 1 equals 1. And then 1 plus 1 equals 2. So now you have a new answer. So you're taking your new answer plus the sum of your previous answer. So now you're going to say 2 plus 1 equals 3. The sum of your previous answer was 2. So two plus three equals five, five plus three equals eight, eight plus five equals 13 and so on and so forth. And so if you, were get, if you were to get a piece of graph paper and start with one square in the center and then travel out to three, then five more squares, then eight more squares, then 13 more squares, and so on and so forth, you will fill that paper and you'll have a perfect spiral. So it's kind of fun. Well, first of all, it's fun to say the name, which Fibonacci is the last name of the Italian mathematician who came up with this formula. And it's just kind of cool to know that there are mathematical formulations that explain the curvature of things that naturally occur in nature. So um, yeah, that's the nerd in me. And you know, this really is making me realize that I need to get one of my mathematician friends on here so that we can explore all of these concepts as well as possibly, this might be one of my philosophy friends, talking about the gambler's fallacy, which is one of the fallacies of critical thinking or critical reasoning, in which you believe that because there has been a deficit of results, or because there's been an excess of results that they will continue or that there will be a change. So for example, say you purchased six scratchers, one each day of the week, and none of those were winners. So you get that seventh scratcher and you go, this is the seventh day and this one's going to be a winner. And that's the cat- the thinking catalyst that gets you to put more money down. And there's no scientific backing to that. So you might win something, you might not win something. And this is one of the reasons why I don't gamble because I know that the law of averages is not on my side when (laughs) I gamble. So I will probably lose these $6. But I just thought, well, let's just play it out. And it's just kind of fun. It's the beginning of summer. I haven't done this in a long time. And I'm not recommending it, which is why I'm talking about the gambler's fallacy. We do this a lot with not just money, we tend to gamble with time with priorities, with choices and partners with choices about what's going to Be most beneficial to us, whether it's a job offering, you know, a project, whether it's a vacation. It's like, you know, we gamble. I want to go and do that instead because of all of these different reasons that we come up with. And it doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. It's just that sometimes we gamble based on hope versus reality. And that's kind of what the gambler's fallacy is. So, To prove it, you know, I handed over $20. And I'm like, I want to have that experience while I'm in Vegas. And that one film really showed that that could happen. Well, the law of averages showed what really happens, which is that I lost. And even when you win, the law of averages are that you're not going to win big. So, you know, I purchased this lotto ticket. And I did win. I doubled my earnings, but it was $4 that I got back, not $296 million. Um, But I, you know, it's just making me realize that because I'm such a nerd, and I'm always really interested in the way that this works and understanding these different concepts. um, I really need to have one when my mathematician friends and one of my critical thinking friends on here, so that we can explore these subjects they're fascinating okay so let's get to the questions like i said at the beginning and my intention had been to be a lot shorter than i was but sometimes i just get really chatty or the stories are really good or they really compel me and so um, that happened this time around so i think i'm just going to get to one of the questions i have about six of them here let's see why do you choose to interview your friends So I think I've touched a little bit on this before. And my friends are just like I always say, they're really amazing people. I am super fortunate to know so many talented people, so many people who just are imminently and always will be so much smarter, intuitive, creative, everything you can think of than I ever will be in a lot of areas. And I also just am keenly interested, not in a creepy stalker type of way, but I'm always really interested to learn about, you know, what what sets people's flame aglow, why they do the things that they do. And I want to learn. I love learning. So I love hearing what my friends have to say. And I've always said all of my life, um, you can probably ask almost any one of my friends, if this is true, but I've always said that all of my friends have at least five things that they can do so much, like, I mean, leagues better than I could ever do them. And I would love to improve my ability to do those things. And most of them have way more than five. Um, I just kind of arbitrarily came upon that number And so I really enjoy talking to them. I think also that people need to have an avenue where they can express themselves and kind of showcase their talents and really be heard. And what better place to be heard than on a podcast where other people will be listening and also at the same time learning from these incredible brains that... I, you know, like I said, I'm so fortunate to have in my life. It's just, you know, I I think everybody wants to be heard. And um, we all need to learn how to listen a little bit better. So this gives me an opportunity to do that. And to do both of those things. I realized at some point, that my friends do have just so much to offer the world. And so much that we can all learn from them. So uh, it's just my honor and my pleasure to have them on this program. Um, hopefully that answered it and it doesn't didn't sound too sappy, but I mean every word of what I just said. And um, yeah, so I think I'm gonna close this particular episode because otherwise it'll go on for like 10 or 20 hours. And I'll uh, probably do another Q&A soon so that I could get to the rest of the questions. So I hope that you enjoyed the Greek mythology storytelling and that it inspires you to familiarize yourself a little more with this strange, adventurous, fantasy-driven world of old whose stories really do remain relevant today. We use a lot of the names of these gods in... Every day, you know, including the solar system. And in many ways, they are the foundational stories to most of the superhero stories that those superpowers, those superhero stories that we love to watch and hear about. And I also hope that some of the math and critical thinking concepts piked your interest to learn a little more about drives and patterns, especially the next time that you see a fiddlehead on a hike or a spiral seashell on the shore this summer. As always, I'll post links in the show notes. Please continue to send me your questions and suggestions. I love hearing from you. And I promise to get to more questions next time. And don't forget to take a moment to rate this episode. It only takes seconds and your rating will help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing the upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. Be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at The Queen Trow Podcast. That's L E Podcast. I am Silannan, The Queen Trow, and until next time, I wish you passion, grace, adventure, a good book to get lost in, Beatable odds, elegance, and beauty.